This is the 7th Avenue Project. I'm the host, Robert Polly, And I just wanted to explain here that excerpts of this interview with Phil Proctor and Phil Austin of the Firesign Theater originally aired on our public radio pledge drive show in October 2010. But I thought there'd be plenty of people who wanted more than just excerpts. So I'm offering up the long version of our conversation for your listening pleasure. I talked to the two Phils about Firesign's Fall 2010 live tour, which includes a gig in Monterey on Saturday, October 9th. They also shared some bits of Firesign lore, described the making of some of their better-known recordings, such as I Think We're All Bozos on This Bus, and offered some insights into their creative methods. And we're going to start off hearing from Phil Proctor talking about Firesign's renown or lack thereof in certain quarters. And you may notice his voice change a few minutes into the interview. That's because he had to switch phones. You know, the thing about the Firesign Theater is that that people either know who we are and, and, you know, attribute to us the fact that we saved their lives at some point in their, in their history, or they haven't got the foggiest idea who we are. So I'll get, you know, are you Phil Proctor, the Phil Proctor? And I say, well, I'm a Phil Proctor. I know two other Phil Proctors in show business, but that's beside the point. Well, I mean, the Fireside Theater, yes, I'm the Phil Proctor of the Fireside Theater. Or they'll say, the Fireside what? Well, do you think that that distinction uh, between those people who immediately recognize you and those who don't and probably never will, is that based on um, age, generation, or, or personality type, or something else? What do you think? What do you think, Bill? Yeah, well, it's because over the thousands of years that we've been together, we uh, have not sold near as many DVDs and albums and CDs as a lot of other people in the comedy business. <clears throat> but what we have sold, we've sold to a bunch of very smart people who tend to uh, all, we all are kind of in the same club where we enjoy a particular kind of humor. I'm most complimented when somebody calls us the American Monty Python, even though they are uh, much more visual and we're much more audio. I still think that's the basic way to look at us. They, of course, were working in TV. You guys were working in audio. And it's always been my theory that if your proper place in, in the history of comedy wasn't acknowledged, it was because of, of that, because you were in audio only yeah. for your albums. Exactly. Uh, but uh, the Monty Python connection, I mean, the two of you, I guess independently, had, um, I think, an aesthetic that uh, was similar in at least one respect, and that it, it, you guys figured out how to jump around between ideas and sketches and things like that. In the same way that the American consciousness or the modern consciousness jumps around uh, uh, while listening to uh, the radio or, or watching TV or something, you know. Yeah, it's very true. I think uh, one of the we, we were all children of uh, old time, what is now called old time radio, and at that time was called radio, and uh, we listened <laughs> to you know to westerns and mysteries and science fiction stories and Norman Corwin and all that great stuff. And, and that's when we got together on the radio, on Radio Free Oz at KPFK, listener-supported station, uh, radio, which Peter Bergman was hosting. Uh, we discovered we had that in common, but we also uh, had in common a uh, kind of an understanding of the, uh, the flow of media around us and how it influenced the, this, our generation and how it would influence generations to come. Uh, we were, I guess, in a way, uh, fans of, of uh, uh, Marshall McLuhan and his understanding of the effect of, of media on the mind, and that was another rallying point for us when we started working together. We kind of ignored the common uh, 
theatrical design of a of, of storytelling, and he eschewed that for uh, a, a rapid fire, if you will, channel surfing, uh, free flowing, almost psychedelic approach to storytelling. And we're going to play some examples that illustrate that perfectly. Um, wanted to ask you uh, before we get too much further into the interview about the current show that you're going to be performing uh, in uh, Monterey, among other places. Mm-hmm. I've got two very different descriptions of this show. One says you're going to uh, reenact, reprise uh, your your landmark 1970 album. I think we're all bozos on this bus. Mm-hmm. Right. Am I right about that? Is that the you is are. that the correct description? That's right. Part of it, yes. Uh-huh. So, so it is the uh, the anniversary, fortieth, I guess, of that yeah. of that album. Um, the other description I had had you starting out playing bits and pieces from your your other recordings. Um, so I guess it's it's the bozos description that's correct. Well, it is a mixture of both those things, Robert. You're absolutely right on every count. <laughs> it, uh, where the shows as we put together shows, we've named this one. Uh, it's Bozos on the Bus. The original album title was I Think We're All Bozos on This Bus. And we have uh, based this whole show uh, with pieces of many of our works woven into the general context of what Bozos is about, which is about the future primarily. And now that the future is here, it seems entirely apropos that we make this uh, kind of a show. Well, I want to uh, remind some listeners who who know that recording of what it sounded like um, and... uh, let others who don't know it find out for themselves for the first time. So I'm going to play a little bit from the opening. Ladies and gentlemen, children, bozos. Uh, uh, say, uh, I'm, I'm a bozo. Oh, yeah, I thought you had a, a kind of a big nose. <laughs> you recognized it, huh? Yeah. Uh, you'd like to give it a squeeze? Oh, no. Oh, come on, squeeze the wheeze. Many people like to. Yeah. <laughs> See, it doesn't hurt me. No. You know, I think, uh, I think we're all bozos on this bus. Oh. Yeah. Uh, my mother was a bozoette at school. No kidding. Well, you know, my mom always said, uh, you got to start young if you're going to stick it out. Well, <laughs> my mother didn't talk to me much. Now, please, everyone, Poor kid. lock your wigs, yeah. let the air out of your shoes, oh, and prepare yeah. yourselves for a period of well, simulated <clears throat> exhilaration. Uh, Everybody ready? Excuse me, I'm Let's just going to sink in. Sink in. <laughs> Hello, Bozos is uh, the third of our classic albums. It is made at the point in which the Firesign Theater suddenly had become remarkably famous and suddenly had uh, record albums on the charts. And we were in the middle of the rock and roll world, even though we were ostensibly humorists. And now that we had invented this kind of monumental form that wasn't just a sketch comedy, where we would make these long stories that uh, took place over two sides of an LP record that is coming in about 45 minutes. Uh, what were we, what were we going to talk about? And Bozo's specifically, we began talking about uh, our fascination with what, uh, with children's records and how they're made and how they sound. And then our fascination with Disneyland, our fascination with uh, the beginning science, the cyber sciences in general and uh, computer programming. 
And we kind of threw it all together and made, uh, I think we're all bozos on this bus at a time when uh, we were kind of working, uh, we were working at a nice clip. How, how, though, did you make it? I mean, we're hearing a lot of voices, we're hearing sound effects, we hear a whole kind of ambient feeling. And I know this is well before the era of digital editing, which I'm familiar with, doing all this on computer. Yeah. How did you guys right. manage to construct that kind of uh, dense sound? That, this was at the point at which uh, engineers are coming up with the ability for us to record on more than one track or more than two tracks or more than eight tracks or then 16 tracks and 32 tracks. So the manipulation of all that, uh, how, how you keep track of it all when you're making a a long-form story and not just doing three-minute songs. Uh, all our techniques that we developed on the fly, we were lucky in that our uh, contract with Columbia Records uh, entailed that because we were not given any music publishing money, and we've never been given any money at all as far as we're concerned, uh, but they gave us unlimited studio time. So we had uh, plenty of time to experiment and work out how we were going to do all that multi-tracking, how we were going to get four people to do 32 voices on an album, and how we were going to manipulate all the sound effects and everything that needed to be done. Time was our biggest friend. From my remembrance of the experience, uh, it was, there were very few times that a razor actually touched tape, uh, and, and we, we tried to keep that to a minimum, and basically we did that by writing... Uh, the album that we were carrying into the studio or adopting it from some you know uh, stage show we'd done or something uh, by writing it from point A to point Z very often Phil if I remember uh, correctly or even if I remember incorrectly it's still a good story uh, we, didn't, we didn't know if uh, what, how how a, an album was a story was particularly going to end right remember oh, that yep exactly right and because we had unlimited studio time we could afford to actually just go in and start writing in the studio, write mm -hmm. ourselves into a corner, sit there and whine <laughs> at each other for two days. It didn't cost us anything. That's right. Go home, uh, come back in a week, and, you know, I mean, we could we could drag things out forever, and that's one reason I think that uh, the records are as thick as they are, and mm -hmm. as a lot of people uh, have pointed out, a Fireside Theater record is really meant for you to listen to uh, at least a hundred times, <laughs> not three times. Yeah, and, and, and uh, as Phil said, Time was our uh, uh, was our asset. Time was our angel when we were working these albums, and it, it's it's turned out that time is still on our side because so many of the ideas that we came up with uh, turned out to be predictive. So that uh, if you, what, people who are revisiting uh, the Bozo's story when they come to see us performing it or aspects of it live. They'll notice how and, and, and how very prescient it was. After all, the character I play, uh, Clem, was basically a hacker uh, who, who had been fired and was getting back at the uh, the people who run this future fair uh, and uh, and planted a virus in the main computer program, which made it crash. Uh, and mind you, this is being written in the early 70s when computers barely were uh, a thought yeah. in anybody's. But computers were only owned by police departments at that time. That's right. And, and uh, a lot of the computer language that you hear in there, like Unhappy MacDam and things like that, uh, we got from uh, discarded sheets of printout uh, at, a, wor at a, a job fair that I went to. Uh, there was a barrel filled with this ELISA program printout. It was an early program of interactivity between uh, a, a consumer and a, a computer, and it was basically a psychiatrist program.
Okay. Yes, uh, not only that, but I mean, the ELISA program is now f- incredibly famous in the annals of uh, computer programmers. Yep. And uh, it, so, what you came upon by chance, and yep. what we what we dragged into the studio uh, by design, turns out to have been right down the middle as far as the development of computers uh, in the world. Yeah, and computer so, language. Mm-hmm. So we've. Uh, we we had a we've always had a strong conversation going with that community and with those people and Bozos is its flagship. That's right. And so we basically kind of built that story. Uh, we laid it down on tape as it came to us and as we wrote it. And then later on, we augmented the uh, adventure with uh, additional sound effects and additional background voices and musical pieces and and. Uh, uh, all, all of the elements that make it a rich, complex movie for your mind. And uh, the guys kind of they designated me as Darth Foley uh, because I was the one who took it upon myself to basically engineer most of the live sound effects that we did. And, and uh, uh, in the motion picture business, Foley is a term for putting in sound effects after the after That's the right. Done. Uh, matching, matching things that you see on the screen. Hey, let so, me mention one thing too, Robert, which is in the show, Bozos, uh, in Monterey, we are have woven into the whole progress of the show uh, quite a bit of uh, the character uh, characters from Nick Danger, our uh, semi-famous <laughs> noir detective series that we've done for a million years. Okay, uh-huh. guys, you know you, you you've said a, a number of things that make me want to play clips, so I'm going to start doing that right now. <laughs> okay. um, first, we're going to go uh, to another uh, clip from I think we're all bozos on this bus that that has some of that computerese. Um, in it uh, that probably emerged from that ELISA program. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Let's just listen for a moment. Dr. Memory. Thank you, thank you. Now, now, doctor, I'm speaking to you, doctor. Mm -hmm. Uh, Something the leprechauns asked me when I was a sprout in Indiana has always puzzled me. Uh, uh, Doctor, question, evaluate. Mm -hmm. Why does the porridge bird lay his egg in the air. Laugh, runaway makes no Read unhappy macnam, unhappy macnam, sistat, uptime, nine. I have been awake for nine hours, two minutes, thirty. Six seconds. I I'm as tired of it as you are, and I hope that, that our children will come to love us again in some better world than this. Oh, damn. Thank you for question. Exit center to Funway. Uh, uh, an excerpt there from uh, the classic comedy album, I Think We're All Bozos on This Bus, by mm-hmm. the Fireside Theater. And I'm joined today by two members of the Fireside Theater, Phil Proctor and Phil Austin. Um, guys, you said just a moment ago that the origin of this um, this computer fantasy, this Fantasia, mm-hmm. was a, a program you discovered, ELISA program. Now, that rings a bell. ELISA was this computerized therapist, right? Correct. Computer scientists had invented this program that would counsel people. It was a very, uh, as I recall, um, sort of clever thing where the, the computer program would simply pick up cues in the uh, the patient's statements and then repeat them back. So, uh, how are you feeling today, Bob? Uh, well, I'm not feeling very good. Oh, you're not feeling very good. <laughs> Why? <laughs> What's going on? The design of the ELISA program had largely a lot to do with uh, uh, what later becomes the study of artificial intelligence. And it's really an exercise in 
could you design a program that a human being could not tell if it, whether it was talking to a computer or whether it was talking to a human being or not? And exactly. that's what the ELISA program was designed to do, was to actually fool you into thinking it was real, or a real human being. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, is a largely what we wind up talking a lot about on Bozos and on many of our other albums, uh, usually summed up in the phrase, what is reality? reality. <laughs> usually <laughs> shouted from the back of a room by someone from East L.A. What is reality, man? Um, (laughs) So what was happening there in that clip we just heard? Um, We heard a computer-like voice um, Mm -hmm. forming words, uh, saying Dr. Memory, and then we heard that... um, that technical term, I don't know what it means, but you mentioned it earlier, MACNAM. Unhappy MACNAM. Uh, well, uh, remember, Dr. Memory is, is short for direct readout memory, okay? So it's like the main, the main frame, uh, what would you call it, the main program uh, that, that, that drives uh, the, uh, the circuits that makes everything happen. And unhappy MACNAM uh, was one of the phrases that I saw on the printout it was something like an unhappy mechanical. I don't know. What, what do you think it means, Phil? I just thought it was funny. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a programming language that's now dead. Uh, yeah, and right. Dead and buried many thousands of years ago. But it's the it's uh, something that it's uh, hardly important that you know exactly what it means. What's nice is the sound of the words. Uh, the word Mac now becomes a character named Mac, and at a certain yeah. point, those voices are named Mac. In there, uh, who knew that Macintosh was yeah. lurking ahead in the future? But my God, what the hell? We seem to know what we were talking I about. I know, and it's it's, <laughs> so, it's it's so true, and so many of the things that we <clears throat> we predicted. You know, the breaking of the president uh, was also really our way of saying that uh, an individual, <clears throat> pardon me, that an individual might be able to actually bring down a regime. In this case, Nixon, and so that happened as well. I mean, well, well, all, well, Phil, put that in context for us. What do you mean breaking of the president? During the experience of the fun fair, we took the Disney's animatronic Lincoln character and contemporized him as a, a smooth-talking politician uh, who is known by the name Mr. President, called Mr. President. And, of course, everybody in this world is unemployed. Hmm. How did we know that would happen? And so they're, they're asking the president uh, how they can get a job. I mean, how many years ago did we do this? You know, uh, hello, last week? It's, it's just astonishing. And eventually, uh, 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 my character breaks the president by, by interfering with his program. Uh, and and brings him down. So, him. so the exchange we just heard between what sounds like a computer and a guy asking what sounds like a nonsensical question mm-hmm. about the porridge bird. Yep. What what was that about? Well, basically, it is that nonsense in a in a world so highly designed and so very very logical that it is the brain behind this thing called the future fair that the bozos are peering inside of, led by uh, Clem. Uh, in inside there somewhere, inside all this logic, there must be a way to bring it all down. And evidently the way to bring it all down is nonsense. The phrase, I, uh, the porridge bird phrase, is absolute nonsense. It means absolutely nothing. It can mm-hmm. mean nothing. It will never mean anything, or it means whatever you want it to mean. Yep. And it seems to be that that kind of illogic is what, in fact, breaks the logical world of but, the future fair. But, but speaking from the inside out... Uh, Phil, and I'll see if you remember this. Uh, my uh, a girlfriend of mine named Angel, a Texas girl, 
uh, she told me that porridge bird story because she said she used to, as a young girl in Texas, go out into her backyard and talk to a, a leprechaun that lived in her backyard. And the leprechaun once asked her that question, why does the porridge bird lay his eggs in the air and then laughed and ran away? Laughed, ran away. And she told me that story, and that's how that illogical or logical uh, childish question, leprechaun question, uh, became the basis for uh, something that might confuse the programming of the uh, of, uh, of the computer and, and cause it to uh, self-destruct. As you can tell from this conversation, Robert, when you've got four writers who all work together <laughs> and who have each of whom has a no vote over everybody else, uh, you can see that as we take things as uh, disparate as. Procto's uh, ex-girlfriend Angel (laughs) and computers and put them together and have four brains working on them all at once, Uh, sooner or later you come out with this horrifyingly rich stew of uh, kind of strange and oddball writing. And I think that's one thing the Fireside Theater has achieved. Strange and oddball is, uh, I believe, is our middle name. We call ourselves the four or five crazy guys because the fifth crazy guy is that amalgam of all of these ideas, uh, and also we think of ourselves very much as the the witches in the Scottish play, which we do uh, our own version of in Act Two, by the way, mixing together this great stew, this bubbling stew, which is full of conundrums and uh, drumming up a lot of trouble. I like the way you uh, said the Scottish play and not Macbeth. Oh. Oh, now I have oh to Oh, my go. God, you just uh, said oh, it. Oh, we have to turn oh around. Oh, my God. Let me just walk under this ladder. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> oh, I'm not an actor. I have nothing to worry about. <laughs> there you go. Right. Radio is a protection against <laughs> against the Scottish. Man. That's right. Um, uh, you know, you, I think you guys have just answered uh, a question that probably uh, many people have had over the years. There were theories that you were just a bunch of very clever guys who got stoned and free-associated, and the other, I think, is that, you know, your work was as, as dense with meaning as uh, a work of James Joyce or Thomas Pynchon or um, T.S. Eliot or any other. Yeah, well, it's a little bit of both, you know. <laughs> Hemingway drank heavily and then wrote brilliant stuff, so, you know, why shouldn't we get a little, you know, smoke a little pot, loosen up, and then start working like demons for days and days and days on end? You know, it was a combination of that. Yeah, we know a lot of people think that we are uh, an improvisational troupe. We're not. We're no. writers. We write everything down. We to this day, I mean, practically on stage, Proctor will have his laptop out there making corrections <laughs> to what we're doing. It's so, true, yeah, but we you are, know, and we are very obsessive, and we are, we are horrifyingly hard workers. But we do like to have fun. And, yeah, and uh, and that actually happens on stage too, because uh, it would happen in the studio. We would obsess over you know a plot point or a line or a character a character's a choice, and then we go into the studio and start to stand it up together, working together, and invariably uh, elements of improvisation would, would crop up in our performance, and we would find sometimes that it took us into a whole different realm. We'd have to stop and go and, and rewrite some lines. Man, if you see those scripts that we worked off of, uh, you know, each, each script individually is scribbled over with all kinds of rewrites and pencil. Sometimes, other times, what we we'd written went right onto the uh, into the tape, right onto the tape. You know, but when we work on live on stage, there are still elements of that that happen to us, and that makes it a lot of fun and makes every show different, really. Uh, have images of these heavily marked up. Uh 
manuscripts well, ever been shown to the public? Because it would be fascinating to see those. We've been selling some of them uh, at the merch table after the show. Uh-huh. You know, because uh-huh. we, we have found some original scripts and things. But uh, no, we haven't actually done that yet. Uh, it might be interesting to, to, to release. Uh, but again, you know, who is our audience? <laughs> How big is our audience? <laughs> Uh, what are they willing to to shell out for something like that? We're certainly not as uh, uh, never had the success that Monty Python had because people were ba- afraid to put us on television. Basically, oh, you tried? Movie. You wanted to be on television? Well, yeah, we did some TV stuff uh, in our early days because you know we were a, a phenomenon, a '70s phenomenon, and and quite famous. Really, we had you know a certain degree of celebrity. Time Magazine. Did an editorial, and pardon me, Life Magazine did an editorial about us with pictures and everything, but uh, but they didn't know what to do with us. Remember, television was pretty uptight in those days, and and uh, and any satirical programs that we participated in, uh, we were a little too political for for them. Remember, we, we, it was still the Vietnam War period and everything, so we never got our we never really got a foot uh, in into television. Um, you're reminding me of another clip I thought I'd work into this interview. Uh, this one that um, is, is characteristic, I think, of, of your uh, your treatments of American history. This is from uh, another classic album, How Can You Be in Two Places at Once When You're Not Anywhere at All. No, first they had to come from little towns with strange names like Smegma, Spasmodic, Frog, and the far-flung Isles of Langerhands. But who were they? We were small, angry oh, men with hairy faces <laughs> and burning feet. feet. We, we were running, running away from poverty, intolerance, and the, army. and the army. And we took to them. And they took to us. And what do you think they took? Oil from Canada, gold from Mexico, geese from the neighbor's backyard, boom, boom. Corn from the Indians, tobacco from the Indians, Dakota from the Indians, New Jersey from the Indians, New Hampshire from the Indians, New England from the Indians, New Delhi from the Indians. Indonesia for the Indonesians! (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Veterans Day. But we couldn't do it alone. No, we needed the hope, the faith, the prayers, the fears. The sweat, the pain, the boils, the tears. The broken bones. The broken home. The total degradation of... Who? You, the little guy. And across him all, we flung one shining steel rail. Rockefeller. 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 One shining steel rail. From sea to mighty sea. From coast to mighty coast. From Bangor all the way to mighty Yeah, that that uh, that uh, that last uh, piece that you heard there uh, is actually a part of the show that we're going to be doing uh, in Monterey and uh, later in Hollywood. Uh, we call it the Presidential Choo Choo, and of course, it's been updated uh, to to uh, to end with uh, uh, Obama. <laughs> but uh, I guess that sort of thing probably um, was offensive to those who wanted only the official uh, sanitized version of American history. Well, that was inspired by Norman Corwin's wonderful radio pieces, uh, and, and and we took our own particular uh, slant on it, which was to basically yes, be as a to be as honest and and uh, outspoken as possible. Norman Corwin, radio pioneer, back in the what thirties, forties, thirties, forties, fifties, and actually, uh, the dear man turned a hundred just about uh, three or four months ago, and. Uh, 
and I actually still spend some time with him occasionally, and he's still trying to produce radio. So it's, he has an amazing longevity. He does, and he created these um, sound collages, these layered pieces um, that uh, were extraordinary for their time. Yes, indeed. True. Uh, yeah, they are, they are yeah. indeed the classic works of their kind. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you guys twisted them quite a bit. Uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were, de- we were dealing, Nor- Norman didn't deal strictly in humor, and we do. We're generally always trying to make you laugh. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Phil, Phil Austin, I, um, I read uh, a so-called bit of trivia on uh, IMDb, the Internet Movie Database, about you. It says that you were in the U.S. Army until 1967, uh, lending your voice talent to radio propaganda in a Quonset hut emblazoned phycological fi- warfare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was good. Actually, I was, I was like many people. I was avoiding being drafted and sent to Vietnam by joining the reserves, where I only had to serve six months on active duty and then thousands of years at various meetings out at Fort MacArthur <laughs> in Los Angeles. <laughs> But but among the, the you know the, the major streams that that sort of feed into your work is the voice of propaganda. It's the voice of the, yeah. You know, and I, it turned out I was very good at writing propaganda. <laughs> I was I was good at writing short uh, short pieces about the dignity and honor of the American infantrymen and stuff like that. I'm I'm actually writing in a, in a kind of in a kind of noble cause because all I was ever asked to do was essentially was was. Uh, be nice to people who were sacrificing their lives for their country. It was great. So patriotic. I didn't, I didn't have to actually write any propaganda whereby we tried to convince the North Koreans that they, that they were evil, luckily. But anyway, it all is very close to commercial writing, to like writing for commercials which uh, and working in the commercial world, which both Phil and I have done extensively over the years. That's right. It's working in kind of short forms that, when you move it into the context of the Firesign Theater, becomes uh, uh, almost a kind of poetry. So that the writing of commercials in the Firesign Theater's world becomes as uh, becomes as big a, a kind of art form as writing longer pieces. Well, uh, I can't resist playing perhaps your most famous commercial of all at this point, and this is you, Phil Proctor, I believe, yeah. as Ralph, Ralph Spoilsport. Oh, thank you. Hiya, friends. Ralph Sportsport. Ralph Sportsport Motors, the world's largest new used and used automobile dealership. Ralph Sportsport Motors here in the city of Emphysema. Let's just look at the extras on this fabulous car. Wire wheel, spoke fenders, two-way sneeze through, wind vents, star sun, mudguard, sponge coated, edible steering column, chrome fender dents, and factory air conditioned air from our fully factory equipped air conditioned factory. It's a beautiful car, friends, with doors to match. Birch's blacklist says this automobile was stolen, but for you, friends, a complete price only to $500 and easy money payments for the rest of the week, twice a week, and never on Sunday. I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. I can't wait to get away from it all. Well, okay, fine. Let's just take a look inside your beautiful new home. Come on in. Thanks. As you can see, this car has been fully equipped with a complete line of extras designed with your mind in mind. Here, for instance, an all-weather climate control in red, blue, or green with a special oxygen danger indicator level. Gee whiz. And here, of course, your own personal remote control picture-sized color TV with matching brass knob. Just reach above the bar and press the button right there under the handy laminated imitation mason at Wild West Gun Rack with a look of real wood for the channel of your choice. Ralph, can I try it? Sure. Don't we do it in the road here at Rockport Board Motors here in the ditty of wet dumb world. And that, again, is from uh, your classic album, How Can You Be in Two Places at Once When You're Not Anywhere at All, a uh, car dealer, Ralph Spoilsport. Yep. Ralph, yeah, Ralph Williams 
when I first came out here uh, to uh, to California with a show called The Amorous Flea, a musical comedy from New York, uh, I didn't know how to drive. You know, I grew up on the East Coast in the Midwest, bicycles and subways and buses and my own two feet are what got me everywhere. And so I, after the show, I'd walk to my hotel room uh, in uh, in Hollywood, and I'd turn on the television, and the only thing I saw constantly was this this little bald-headed gnome-like guy selling cars, walking you know past just acres and acres and acres of cars, and uh, in this in this what I call the mantra, and uh, so I you know in my stupor I started uh, imitating him. I felt like a stranger in a strange land out here in L.A., and that was one of the things that I shared with my partners. And uh, it naturally became a part of the culture that we created uh, about the, the world that we were living in, because he was the perfect pitch man. Um, now, now in that uh, in that bit we just heard, uh, Ralph Spoilsport Motors with you, Phil Proctor, as the um, unforgettable pitch man, yep. Ralph Spoilsport. Uh, heard a couple of lines that I think probably a lot of people who are fans of yours be committed to memory forever. You know, uh, the beautiful city of emphysema, or the city of that emphysema. Uh, look of real word with just little bits of um, crazy ad speak that just yep. you know seemed to chop. Well, listen, the, that phrase with the look of real wood <laughs> was something that I picked up when I was doing an industrial for uh, I think Ford Motors in Detroit. You know, I just gotten out of Yale and we're doing a musical industrial, uh, uh, and and they were just introducing these veneers with the look of real wood. And I said, oh, my God, here we go with the look of real wood. And listen, that thing, the climate control that we, that we put in there in that album that you know, carries our, uh, our character into all kinds of strange uh, other worlds, climate control, right after we put out the album, they came out with a thing called climate control. Oh, you guys did that before the actual uh, yes. feature was introduced in the car industry? Yes. Oh, this happened all the time. <laughs> Because, you know, like Phil said, we were thinking like ad men, you know? We were parodying the form, so in order to parody the form, it's like, like uh, in Fahrenheit 451, Ray Bradbury wrote, to, to find one must know how to hide, right? Yeah. So we, we, we found a lot of stuff by hiding stuff in, in the, the stuff that we wrote, you know? Uh, well, it was great fun. Still great fun to do that. Well, well the, to listen to your work is to hear this, um, I'll, I'll say, miasma of, of American hype. Uh, it's ads. It's um, various kinds of propaganda. It's mm -hmm. you know government propaganda, corporate propaganda, all kinds of showmanship, yep. which um, is really what does, I, I think, uh, fill our heads. Well, the results of what we were writing about have now come a cropper and and the sorry state of our society and our politics is a direct result of the effects of this of all of this stuff on uh, on Americans minds exactly you weren't just catching the sound of what was coming through the speakers you were catching the sound i hate to say it of our own interior voices very very true that's a very good observation and uh, a very um frightening one <laughs> Well, all we have to fear is fear itself. All we have to fear is you. That's right. Um, I was going to say, too, that those, those, um, those lines of yours that you, in some cases, um, picked up, as you say, from the corporate world or other, other channels, or, or made up in a, a style that was just perfectly representative of that 
kind of um, communication, then made their way into uh, people's minds, and now you have fans who could can yep. reel them off verbatim. Uh, some of the ones we heard earlier in um, the clip we heard from We're All Bozos on This Bus, uh, Squeeze the Wheeze, um, yep. We're All Bozos on This Many Bus. people do. Uh, yeah, and, and, you know, Ralph makes an appearance in in uh, in our, our stage show as well, as does Babe from How Can You Be? But one of the things that Phil and I, uh, well, all of us noticed was when we were touring in the earlier days and um, and we were doing our shows, uh, almost verbatim, we were trying to kind of visualize, I think, Robozo's on this bus or another show with costumes and props and flashbots and a big set. If we change the lines too much because maybe we want to contemporize something, our fans would get pissed. <laughs> That's not the way it is on the record. <laughs> when did you guys first realize, though, that this stuff you were putting out that was extremely outside, uh, esoteric, challenging, uh, not mainstream comedy at all, was actually getting picked up and memorized by people. I don't know, and I suddenly saw my picture in Rolling Stone magazine, or <clears throat> when it was that kind of publicity, when you, we suddenly uh, turned around and pulled ourselves up out of the studio and said, oh my God, there's other people in this world that, that know who we are, and that there's, particularly on college campuses all over the country, this is in the very late 60s, uh, there are people getting together and listening to these albums over and over again and committing them to memory, and suddenly people would like to have us come and do shows or this and that, that we began to realize that we had hit on something. We never, we really never had a plan. We were never nope. very ambitious about the Fireside Theater. It was just something that we had so much fun doing. We tended to sacrifice a lot of other things in order to get it done. And we, we and also... By the second or third album, all of a sudden we were being reviewed and we were in magazines and we were suddenly semi, certainly by our own standards, famous. Yeah, and, and we, we found ourselves to be pretty much unmanageable over the years. Well, still, I believe, I certainly know you're unmanageable and I hope <laughs> to be too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but the thing, I remember when, when I really knew that we'd made it was I was uh, um, married to a Norwegian uh, woman named Barbro. And we were over in Oslo, and we were at the Munch Museum, standing in front of the scream, okay? Yeah. And, and I, I felt these eyes in the back of my neck, and I looked around, and there was a, a, a hippie guy and a uh, flower girl standing behind me, and they said, you're Phil Proctor, aren't you? And I said, it was American kids, and I said, oh boy, I'm famous. <laughs> Well, how could how could that have happened? You know, um, was there? I mean, we, we've talked about the fact that you guys um, didn't achieve the kind of commercial success that uh, uh, your contributions deserved. There's a pandering question if you ever heard. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, you got fame in another way, and I was wondering if maybe it was, um, you know, a perfect time. This kind of comedy, as challenging as it was, as dense as it was. We talked about your script writing process and yeah. and how many ideas and how many uh, kinds of influences fed into these rather complicated scripts. But you had going on at the same time a culture that was into mind expansion, right? I mean, yep. whether, whether via drugs or just any kind of other mind blowing experience. And I, yeah. did that open the world to to a kind of comedy that that it hadn't heard before? Of course, absolutely. Yeah. There was that we we were in tune with our times for a couple of minutes there, and it worked out very nicely. And also at the same time, there were two other strong influences, which were the mu the music business, the LP business, 
had moved into kind of uh, more long form and more uh, interesting ways of looking at uh, recording music, and at the same time on the radio, particularly in the United States and on the West Coast, freeform radio was enjoying a renaissance. So that uh, fire, the long, long things like Firesign Theater records were being played regularly on the yeah. radio, and uh, that allowed a whole lot of people to know us that otherwise would not have. Yeah, mm-hmm. FM was really beginning to take hold, and stereo yeah. FM was beginning to take hold, and we were part of that revolution. But in terms of of, uh, of how we wrote together, I always thought of it as being associative comedy, associative thinking. I always felt that by making these these crazy leaps. Uh, from one idea to another idea, by by an associative uh, link, we were actually touching upon the the way that the mind works and the the memory works and the unconscious works, and in in essence, kind of exercising uh, the brain. You know, showing yeah, people yeah. how to use their minds more more uh, 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 coherently and 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 more efficiently. We invented we invented this other human being called the Firesane Theater, and then we sort of just like would watch and see what he would do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and uh, in the in the performance in Monterey, uh, it is the original four members of the Firesane Theater. Not that yep. there were any others. Uh, you, Phil Austin, and you, Phil Proctor, also Peter Bergman and um, David yeah. Osman. Have you guys remained friends all these years? Well, not, we we haven't <laughs> been friends all these years, but we're still friends now. So, I think that's a fair assessment, isn't it, Phil? We are friends. Uh, I mean, friendship has to do with a whole lot of things, including some pretty knockdown, drag-out fights over the years. But mm-hmm. it all I look back on it all as being friendship, all a long conversation between four friends, and it's still going on. Yeah, I always equate it with uh, a long-lasting marriage. Uh, uh, and the reason why we're getting along so well together is that there's no sex. <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> Those days are over. <laughs> but but creative differences, though they might have caused some friction, didn't uh, bring the whole enterprise down. No, they absolutely didn't, and that's one of the remarkable things about us. I think when you see us on stage, you realize that it's pretty unusual for guys our age to be getting along as well as we do. We yep. uh, we continue to our stage shows continue to be exercises in in, in my three partners trying to crack me up and me trying to crack them up. True. And does it happen? Do you guys crack up on stage? Oh, yeah. <laughs> way, too, way too often. Oh, yeah, because we inspire one another to be supremely silly. And also because we are, as I've said in the past, we are extremely self-indulgent, and we, will, we actually sort of don't care in a way whether you laugh, but I am concerned whether Bill Proctor laughs at my <laughs> yeah. jokes. True, it's true. That, I, that, that is uh, an ingredient of, of the greatest um, creative um, collaborations is that you're trying to please each other. I think so, and I and I think that that contributes to this general aura of friendship about us, which, given our long history that wasn't always friendly, makes it even more precious and sort of kind of wonderful that we are yeah. having as much fun with each other right now as we are. Yep. I, I should add to trying to please each other, in some cases trying to one-up each other or impress each yeah. other. Just, to, just the sex is gone, that's all. <laughs> that's right. I, I always like to say, and I do... Maybe my partners don't like to hear it, but we started in, in the 60s, and now we're all getting beyond our 60s, and we're still together. It's amazing. Yeah, it really is amazing. It's uh, very, very, very unusual. It is. You know, we've talked about some of the influences on your sound being that um, pervasive American uh, hucksterism and propaganda, and another, of course, is radio, old-time radio. And, um, Phil Austin, I just wanted to... Uh, 
take advantage of the opportunity to uh, to hear maybe your most famous character. Yeah, you know who sure. I mean, don't you? Yeah. I know who it is, and I hate him for it. Yeah, shut up, Rakoka. Ah, you're. A, I hate you, Danger. I'll get you. You wait and yeah. see. I'm not. I'm not full of hate, Rocky. I've come to the point where I get. I, I. I get you. I think. I think that you're actually kind of a humorous and nice kind of guy, small though you may be. <laughs> you're not going to subvert me with your with your fancy talk, anyway. Can't believe you're just. I'm not going to listen up. to this next cut. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not listening. Not listening. Not listening. Who needs a clip? We got Nick Danger and Rocky Rococo on the air. Uh, <laughs> Do you guys think I should play a clip at this sure. point? Okay. Well, let's let's play let's play a clip anyway, just to to remind people of the original sound. The makers of fantastic cigarettes, long in the leaf and short in the can, bring you another true story from the tattered case book of Nick Danger, Third Eye. Let's join him now in the adventure we call Cut Him Off at the Past. Let's get down to business. Uncross those beautiful stems of yours, baby. Here's the case I call number six six six. It all began innocently enough on Tuesday. I was sitting in my office on that drizzly afternoon, listening to the monotonous staccato of rain on my desktop and reading my name on the glass of my office door. Regnad Kisten. My secretary lay snoring on the floor, her long, beautiful gams pinioned under the couch. I didn't hear him enter, but my nostrils flared at the smell of his perfume. Pyramid patchouli. There was only one joker in L.A. sensitive enough to wear that scent, and I had to find out who he was. Good afternoon, Mr. Danger. I'm Rocky Rococo. And that was the Firesign Theater, of course, with, with Nick Danger, Third Eye. What do you think the most famous line to come out of that recording was? I'm not sure about what the most famous line is. I think actually the title that we were we were very lucky in that we chose the words Nick and the word danger uh, because they have stuck with people. There was, uh, you know, Mike Hammer, the, uh, Mickey Spillane. the famous author, yeah. Mickey, who, that is Mickey Spillane, who invented Mike Hammer, uh, had a comic strip that he was trying to sell at one time called, <laughs> I think, was it Mick Danger, Phil? What was it? Mick, Mick Danger? Was, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, something like that, but it never sold, so we somehow wound up with this name. and it's been Yeah, and then, and then a sweater manufacturer usurped it, put out a line of Nick Danger clothing, and then, of course, you know, uh, denied that he You're knew kidding. that we created the name. You You're know. kidding. No, it's true. Well, I was going to nominate, um, of course, there are many famous lines from that, from that sketch, but I was going to nominate Rocky Rococo at your... At your service. Oh, at your cervix. Yes. Ma'am. Yes. Well, there's going to, oh, yeah. Uh, you know, you'll, you'll hear some of that and, and, and then a surprise uh, episode uh, that you've never probably, that maybe a few people have heard before. Uh, it, anyway, it, it, it's, it's wonderful. We've done so many iterations of Nick Danger that we had to put out, you know, a comp- compilation album, yeah. a four CD set called uh, uh, Danger in a Box. <laughs> the box of danger. Box of, da- big, box the big, of danger. Yeah, box of box danger. Of danger on Shout Factory. Right? On Shout Factory. That's right. Which you can get. And I just want to say this. Uh, I, I know times are tough, and I know people might have to dig deep uh, in their pockets to come up with the bucks to come and see us. Uh, but uh, I want to say two things. Number one, uh, I don't know how much longer we're going to be doing this. And number two, uh, if you if there's a show that you want to see this year, and you're a fan of of uh, the Firesign Theater. This may be one of the last chances you have to see us and to meet us and to greet us and to shake our hands 
and we would love for you to be there. So uh, please consider it an investment in, in something that you will never forget. Uh, Phil, I honestly think that had the ring of a real um, pitch. I think you should do that in the Ralph Spoilsport voice. Hiya, friends. Come on down and see the Fireside Theater. We'll be there. We don't know how much longer we're going to be on the stage. The next stage may take us out of town on a stagecoach. So come on down and see us now and bring your bags of gold and leave them at the stage door. Thank you very much. <laughs> That's much better. That's I guess so. I don't know. It's pretty <laughs> stupid. I think the play to, uh, to uh, imminent death was, was very clever. Absolutely. <laughs> well, you know, it is. Uh, we we intend to live good long lives because comedy keeps you young. There's no doubt about it. But uh, uh, it still is. Uh, it becomes more and more of an effort to get the old uh, all the all the old boys uh, into cars and on planes and trains and things. You know, to to hike up on a stage and do this stuff. So uh, we're going to do it as long as we can, as long as it's fun, and as long as people support us and come out and see us. Great. Well, thank you both. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much, You've been very pleasant to talk to for us, too. Yeah, thank you so much. This interview has been brought to you by the 7th Avenue Project. On the web, at 7thAvenueProject.com. I'm Robert Polly. Thanks for listening.